City. WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Online at letstalkfaith.com. Or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded. The way that Stephen presents his defense is quite unique, and therefore Stephen's speech is unlike any other defense or sermon we have previously seen, and we've seen a few in Acts. It's certainly different from the way that Peter spoke in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, and it is very different from the way that Peter defended himself when he stood trial before the very same council. We can see these differences in three very noticeable ways. First of all, back in chapter 4, when Peter and John were on trial for healing a lame man and then preaching Jesus to the people who had gathered around them, the Sanhedrin, I remind you, asked them this question, by what power or in what name have you done this? And Peter answered this question as directly as it could be answered. He said in chapter 4, verse 10, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. was going through Stephen's mind as he was giving his defense to the Sanhedrin. I wonder when he realized he was going to see his Savior. Welcome to Verse by Verse featuring the teaching ministry of Steve Kreloff, the pastor of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Our series is titled Stephen's Defense Before the Sanhedrin. It's taken from Acts chapters 6 through 8. Now today we will be in Acts chapter 7 verse 9. So if you're able to follow in your Bible, this is where we begin. As we have already seen in past sessions, Stephen was accused of blasphemy, specifically against the temple, and talking against Moses and the law and blasphemy against God. A serious accusations which Stephen more or less ignored. He never said, no, I haven't blasphemed, I haven't done or said any of those things. That's what I would have said. However, Stephen took a very different course of action, and we will see how that turned out today on Verse by Verse. This morning, as we resume our study of the book of Acts, we are continuing to look at chapter 7, which is Stephen, the first martyr's speech and his defense before the Jewish high council known as the Sanhedrin. Now, as you'll recall from previous studies, the reason that Stephen is even in this position of having to defend himself before the Sanhedrin is because some men, frustrated from failing to successfully debate Stephen about Jesus, falsely and maliciously accused him of blaspheming Moses, meaning that they said he spoke against the Mosaic Old Testament law, and they accused him of blaspheming God, meaning that he spoke against the temple of God, which stood in that day in the city of Jerusalem. By the way, the temple was the heart of Judaism. It was the soul of Judaism. So having been physically dragged before the Sanhedrin with these fabricated charges leveled against him, the high priest then asks Stephen in verse 1 of chapter 7, are these things 
So, that is to say, is it true what these men are saying about you, that you have blasphemed the law of Moses and the temple of God? Is this true? Now, as I told you last week, according to the Mosaic law, blasphemy against God was punishable by death. It was a capital crime. So Stephen is actually on trial for his life. And therefore, he knows that he has to choose his words wisely and carefully, and he does. But the way that Stephen presents his defense is quite unique, and therefore Stephen's speech is unlike any other defense or sermon we have previously seen, and we've seen a few in Acts. It's certainly different from the way that Peter spoke in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, and it is very different from the way that Peter defended himself when he stood trial before the very same council. We can see these differences in three very noticeable ways. First of all, back in chapter 4, when Peter and John were on trial for healing a lame man and then preaching Jesus to the people who had gathered around them, the Sanhedrin, I remind you, asked them this question. By what power or in what name have you done this? And Peter answered this question as directly as it could be answered. He said in chapter 4, verse 10, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. I mean, you couldn't get any more direct than that. They asked him, by what name you healed this man? He tells them very clearly, it is Jesus of Nazareth. But Stephen, in his defense, he doesn't answer the charge of blasphemy directly. He makes no statement to the effect of saying, no, I have never said any blasphemous words against Moses, the law, God, or his temple. I categorically deny these charges. Here's what I actually said, but my words were twisted and they were manipulated by those who argued against me and debated me. He doesn't say that. Not at all. Secondly, unlike Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, where Peter quoted numerous Old Testament verses, and then Peter explained, he interpreted those verses, what they meant and how they applied to Jesus. Stephen doesn't do that. While his speech is filled with statements, as we'll see, and we've already seen this from last week, about Old Testament events, he doesn't actually explain any scripture. He does quote a few scriptures, but he doesn't interpret them. Instead, he presents his material more like a lesson on biblical history than an exposition of scripture. The third difference between Peter's public words and Stephen's speech is that while Peter spoke much about Jesus being the Messiah and emphasized his resurrection from the dead, Stephen doesn't even mention Jesus by name. He says in verse 52, he calls him the righteous one. He doesn't say anything about Christ's resurrection. So, as you can see, folks, there are some very clear differences between how Peter defended himself and spoke in public and how Stephen defended himself. But regardless of the different approaches taken by these two great men, they both accomplished exactly what they wanted to accomplish and what the Spirit of God led them to accomplish. They both gave a powerful witness for Jesus Christ. And the way Stephen does this is that instead of directly defending himself 
against these charges, he turns the tables on the Sanhedrin by showing them from their own history, their own scriptures, which is, consists of their history, that they, like their rebellious ancestors before them, they are guilty of rejecting those God sent to deliver the Jewish people, culminating in their recent rejection of the Messiah, Jesus whom Stephen calls the righteous one. Notice where he's leading them on this. Verses 51 through 53. This is all part of design. This is his plan. He's leading them to see this, to make this accusation against them. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become, you who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. In other words, he's telling them that he's not the one guilty of blaspheming Moses or God. They are. Just like their forefathers, they are stubborn. When he says you're uncircumcised in heart and ears, he means that you're pagans at heart. You're just like pagans always resistant to the Holy Spirit, guilty of killing the prophets who announced the coming of Messiah, guilty of murdering your Messiah, guilty of disobeying the Mosaic law. So they're the ones who are guilty of blasphemy, not him. So even though Stephen doesn't quote or explain Old Testament verses the way Peter did, and even though Stephen doesn't directly mention the name of Jesus, and even though Stephen doesn't speak about Christ's resurrection the way that Peter did, he does make the same accusation against the religious leaders that Peter made, which is that they are guilty of rejecting and murdering God's Messiah. And for saying this, Stephen was stoned to death, making him the first in a long line of martyrs in the history of the Christian church. But in addition to boldly pronouncing guilt upon the Sanhedrin, Stephen does make sure to explain why he isn't guilty. He does it indirectly, but he does it. Why he isn't guilty of the charges brought against him. He does this in a most unique way. Using the Old Testament, Stephen highlights certain events from the lives of three very well-known Jewish men, Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. And his primary purpose in speaking of these men is to illustrate by the way that God worked in their lives, in the lives of these three men, that the Lord is not confined to dwelling and working in a temple in Jerusalem. That's his point. See, Stephen was accused of speaking against the temple. And while we may not completely grasp it because we're so far removed from the temple, we're not Israelites living in Jerusalem, but the temple was a big deal in contemporary Jewish thinking because the Jews of that day considered the temple as the one and only place on earth where God dwelt and was present. And apparently in his preaching, Stephen spoke against this error, said they were wrong, said that God's presence was not limited to the temple. For all we know, he may have even repeated the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 2, concerning the soon-to-be destruction of the temple, which did come in 70 AD, when Jesus said, Not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. It'll all be torn down, he's saying. That was considered blasphemy. Why? Because the temple was the very heart, the very soul of Judaism. It was the center of Jewish life. It was the center of the Jewish community. The Jewish identity was wrapped up 
in the temple. Jewish worship was there. It was the soul of the Jewish people. The temple was everything to them. So to say anything negative about the temple was considered blasphemous. So in his defending statement, Stephen first tackles the temple issue, this charge against him by showing the limits of the temple. It was limited because it wasn't the only place on earth where God dwelt or where he acted or where he blessed his people. And Stephen does this by demonstrating how active God was in the lives of these three men, Abraham, Joseph, Moses. And he was active while these men were living outside of the land of Israel and prior to the existence of the temple in Jerusalem. And Having illustrated this truth from the lives of these three men, as I told you last week, Stephen closes his speech by directly stating what he's already illustrated, that God himself says that he does not dwell in houses built by men. Verses 48 through 50, however, the Most High, he says, does not dwell in houses made by human hands. Now he's getting very direct. He says, As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? So Stephen has indirectly stated it. He closes his speech by directly stating it. But in addition to making his defense about not speaking against the temple, Stephen also, and note this, he also uses the lives of two of these men, Joseph and Moses to make the point that when one looks at history and how the Jewish people have historically treated those who have been sent by God to deliver them, there is a terrible pattern that emerges, a terrible pattern, the pattern being that of rejecting their deliverers. They did this with Joseph, they did this with Moses, and now Stephen wants them to know you've done it again with Jesus, the ultimate deliverer. So far from Stephen being the guilty one of speaking against Moses, of speaking against the law, of speaking against God, the Jewish people's own history condemns them as rebelling against Moses and those like Moses who were sent to deliver them. Now, last week, we spent our time studying the first eight verses of chapter 7, in which Stephen speaks of God revealing himself to Abraham as the God of glory. And all this happened while he was living in a pagan land, the pagan land of Mesopotamia, long before he lived in Israel and long before the temple even existed. Now today, as we continue looking at Stephen's speech, we pick up right where we left off. Verse 9, as he moves on to tell us about another great Old Testament man, Joseph. Starting in verse 9, we read this. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, yet God was with him. Now, with these words, Stephen introduces us to a new thought in his defense. Remember, this is his defense. That thought being that early in the history, very early in the history of Israel, there was an incident, an incident in which the Jewish people rejected the one that God sent to deliver them. He tells us of the time that the patriarchs, and by patriarchs he means the other sons of Jacob, the brothers of Joseph, they're really the founding fathers of the nation, that the patriarchs, due to their jealousy of Joseph, they sold him into slavery, which resulted in him being brought 
to the land of Egypt. Now, the event that Stephen is referring to comes to us from the book of Genesis, where we read that Jacob had 12 sons, one of which was Joseph, and Joseph was hated by his brothers. And there are two reasons the Bible gives for why Joseph's brothers hated him. One was because he was favored by his father, Jacob. Why was he favored? Well, he was the very first son born to the wife that Jacob loved, Rachel, as opposed to his other wife, Leah, whom he did not love. We read in Genesis 37, verses 3 and 4. Now Israel, that's another name for Jacob. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, meaning that as he was an older man, he was the one that Rachel gave birth to. And he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Now, the second reason they hated Joseph is because he told them about a couple of dreams that he had in which he was ruling over them, reigning over them, and they were all bowing down to him. Chapter 37, verses 5 through 11 tells us this. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he still had another dream and related it to his brothers and said, lo, I've still had another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. That's just symbolism for Israel. And he related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So what we learn is that his brothers hated him, and they were jealous of him, and it drove them one day to throw Joseph into a pit and then sell him as a slave to some Ishmaelites who brought him to the land of Egypt. Now, there are a number of things that could be said about the horrible behavior of Joseph's family. Like, for example, his father's terrible sin of favoring one child over another, and like the despicable act of selling Joseph into slavery. But I want you to notice that Stephen mentions neither of these things. Now, they're both horrible things, and we could speak about them, and Scripture does address those subjects, but not here. That's not Stephen's purpose. What Stephen does mention, though, are three issues, which when you see these issues, you'll understand his reason for bringing these particular issues up and where he's going with his defense before the Sanhedrin. First of all, notice that he speaks of the jealousy of Joseph's brothers towards him. He said the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph. Now, why would Stephen say this? Why is their jealousy of Joseph relevant to Stephen's defense? After all, the man's on trial for his life. What does this ancient story of jealousy have to do with Stephen's present trial? Well, the reason he states that it was jealousy that motivated Joseph's brothers to hate and reject him is because this was precisely the reason that the Sanhedrin had Jesus 
arrested and handed over to Pilate to be crucified. We read this in Mark chapter 15, verse 10. Speaking of Pilate, we read, For he, meaning Pilate, he was aware that the chief priest had handed Jesus over because of envy. Listen, the Jewish leaders were envious, jealous of Jesus. Why? Because he was so popular with the people that they saw him as a threat to their power, a threat to their influence over the people. This is why we read, for example, in John chapter 11, starting in verse 47, therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Instead of saying, if he is the Messiah, then we need to bow down before him and accept him. They're having a political discussion here. That's what this is about. If this continues, the Romans are going to take away our power. And their conclusion to this problem that they have with Jesus is that they decided they needed to eliminate him, get rid of him as a threat, which meant that they plotted to kill him. That's what verse 53 says. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. So understand that the reason Jesus was murdered was not strictly because the Jewish leaders disagreed with him as to his identity. It wasn't simply a matter of interpretation. In large part, it had to do with their greed, their lust for power and authority. It really, as I said, it was a political issue as well as a religious one. And the reason then, note this, that Stephen speaks of Joseph's brothers being jealous of him is because he wants the Sanhedrin to connect the dots the dots of history. He wants them to face the fact that what drove them to reject Jesus, it's the same wicked attitude of jealousy that drove the patriarchs to reject Joseph. You see, while Stephen is the one on trial, he's actually building his case against the Sanhedrin, that they, like their ancestors, their jealousy has driven them to hate and to reject the one God sent to deliver them, Jesus the righteous one. Second issue that Stephen brings up in his opening words about Joseph is that it was the act of being sold into slavery that brought Joseph to the land of Egypt. And folks, I want you to understand this is very significant because remember, Stephen is making the case that God is not limited. God is not confined to working in his Jewish temple but that he's active in the lives of his people wherever they are, and he was certainly active in Joseph's life even while he was living in the foreign country of Egypt. By the way, that is the unnamed country that Stephen has just mentioned in connection with God's promise to Abraham. If you go back to verses 6 and 7, we read, but God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens, that is, Abraham's children would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, God says, I myself will judge. And after that, they'll come out and serve me in this place. That's Egypt he's referring to. And now Stephen is stating how Abraham's descendants ended up in this foreign land of Egypt. It all started with Joseph being brought there as a slave. Now listen closely. What affirms to us that Stephen's primary point is to stress Joseph's location in Egypt 
what tells us that we're on the right track, that this is the right interpretation, is that in the seven verses in which Stephen talks about Joseph, only seven verses, he mentions the nation of Egypt by name six times. And he does this intentionally because he wants the Sanhedrin to get it. Like I said at the beginning of today's program, I wonder if Stephen understood the gravity of the situation that he was in before the Sanhedrin. I'm sure he realized the charges brought against him were bogus. Whatever the case, this is a fascinating study we are in with our verse-by-verse broadcast. Our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff, will be with us next time on the verse-by-verse broadcast, so I hope you can join us then. I would like to mention the verse-by-verse podcast before we leave. If you would like to be able to go back and listen to a particular broadcast again, surf over to versebyverseradio.org and sign up for the verse-by-verse podcast. That's versebyverseradio.org. Verse-by-verse